Peters, and I was formerly the intern here at Forest Grove, finishing up my fourth year at Bethany College. And uh, Harry has asked me a few times throughout my internship if I would be able to co-preach with him, and it never quite worked out. But he asked me today, and it worked, so here we are. Uh, Just to be clear, I asked him about a week or two ago. I didn't ask him just this morning, so he's had a little (laughs) bit of time to get get ready for today. So yes, he was our intern uh, this last year. Appreciated, Tim, your ministry and engagement with all of us as a staff. And you and your wife, Jamie, uh, they were part of our trip to Mexico, and I was part of the leadership team with that and appreciated your ministry there as well. So uh, good to be sharing this preaching assignment uh, with you from the book of James. Uh, Judy, my wife, and I went to the exhibition this last week on Tuesday night. We largely went to hear Johnny Reed and enjoy the evening at the Grandstand uh, show. Uh, Lots of raw energy and lots of raw talent, and it was just a fantastic evening as we uh, took in that concert. But before we went to the concert, we walked through the exhibition, and uh, we came along uh, a fudge stand in the exhibition where all the exhibits were. And uh, I, uh, I actually am trying to, for various reasons, I'm trying to avoid sugar as a rule. So I really try to minimize my sugar intake. And by and large, I am quite uh, successful with that. Uh, But it was interesting because Judy knew the lady that was behind the counter. They stopped there. Judy stopped. And then I had to stop, of course, as well. And we ended up in a conversation, or I should say Judy ended up in a conversation. So here I am now standing in front of the fudge stand. And uh, generally, I don't have any problems with fudge stands. I just walk by. The decision's already been made. But now I begin to size up the points of temptation. And, and I, I really do love sweets. So there I see chocolate. I see double chocolate. I see uh, double chocolate with walnuts, which I really enjoy. And so there is a, a temptation that he began to sort of come over me in terms of the fudge that was there. Which, uh, actually, afterwards, I was able to spin a little lesson out of that that is really critical in life. And the lesson simply is, um, don't linger around your points of temptation, whatever they might be. And I'm not suggesting, I'm not suggesting that if you buy fudge, it's sin. I'm not suggesting (laughs) it at all. But for me, it's a temptation. I know I just shouldn't be eating sugar for various health reasons. But uh, don't linger around your points of temptation. Uh, The Bible talks about, uh, to Paul, to Timothy, flee from the evil desires of youth. And basically he's saying the same thing as well. But it prompted me, especially in light of looking at this passage that we'll look at in James chapter 4, that there are uh, a number of statements in life where we might start the statement off with a don't word. And at the end of the don't word, there is some significant expression of wisdom. And there really is, as small and as trite as it is, don't linger around your points of temptation. There really is a lot of wisdom at the end of that. You take your temptation, whatever it is, don't linger around there. Because you might well fall prey to sin. Uh, Now, the interesting piece on her story here, I want to go on with this don't idea right away, but uh, I didn't buy any fudge, but Judy did. And so the double fudge traveled along with us. And because I had hesitated, and then I saw Judy eating it, so I had some double fudge as well. I thoroughly enjoyed it. 
Now, related to this, it has been said that Christianity is a religion of relationship, and it is not a list of do's and don'ts. And that is totally correct and totally appropriate to say. It begins with relationship. It begins with relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But at the same time, through Scripture, there are a fair share of imperatives on how we should live, and not only on how we should live, but how we shouldn't live. And so there are the don't statements in the Bible that we need to factor in as well. How many are there? I don't know. I did type in don't, and I also typed in do not into my computer, into my concordance, and I'm not suggesting all of these are imperatives, because they're not. It's used in different ways as well through Scripture, but there are 1,500 entrances that have popped up. My guess is there's probably at least 100, 200, 300 maybe statements through the Bible where it says, don't, don't do this, whatever the statement might be, as we would conclude it. So at the risk of coming across a little bit too negative, uh, we've set up the, our, the sermon with a series of don't statements. And we recognize that James doesn't use this language throughout today's text, but you can sense it. And the reality of it is that he does use do not or the don't at least four or five times throughout James and one in the text that we're looking at today. Uh, last week we were introduced to James 3.13, uh, a question in that passage. Uh, who is wise and understanding among you? And the response to that question is carried forward in, in the text that we have today, in James 4, verses 1 to 2, which we will summarize in these six don't statements. So let's begin. The first don't statement is, is found in, in James 4, verse 1. Don't fight. And it says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So fighting seems to characterize life, doesn't it? Um, when I was in high school... Uh, some of the disputes that were handled by the all-boys school that was a part of at Campion High School was these two or three guys that couldn't get along went to a back alley. About 100 or 200 other guys followed along, and they had a fist fight in the back alley. It's how they settled their fights, how we settled our fights, at least in that setting at Campion High School. But not just teen boys. Sometimes we have witnessed on TV... Uh, some legislative assembly in the world uh, getting out of hand. Happened not that long ago, I think it was the Ukrainian assembly, men going at it. It looked so out of place, men in their suits and ties and dress shoes, and there they were pushing and shoving and engaging in fistfight back and forth with one another. And we all have neighbors, whether that be upstairs or downstairs neighbors or neighbors across the street or with a fence between um, or even farmers with land have, have adjacent land to some other people. So neighbors can be a source of, of conflicts as well. Uh, and reasons may vary. It might be because of a, of a noisy dog or loud music being played. Or on occasion, and, and on occasion some people have even gone through the inconvenience of packing up their stuff and moving away, largely to do with not getting along with a neighbor. Fences make for good neighbors usually, but it is even conceivable that the design of the, the intended fence has been a source of conflict between neighbors. 
And even, even our work settings can be a, a, a situation where, where relationships can be tense, and, and certain measures of fighting can happen there as well. And the language used is less, can be less than complimentary. And fighting can also happen, unfortunately so, in church settings. Now, it's unfortunate when you look at church life across North America, there are a fair share, a number of churches, that have been in conflict, probably are in conflict right now, where there's fighting that's happening, and there are significant tensions with people within the church circles. Uh, Fights, presumably, were happening in the church or churches that James was writing to as well. That's why it's in this text right here, and we'll pick up some of the issues in some of the reasons in a few moments. Years ago, I remember hearing Peter Wagner, a church consultant, a church growth consultant for North America, saying that church fights in North America come down primarily to one reason. And the reason simply is, who's in charge here? Who's in charge of the music? Who's in charge in terms of uh, renovations in the building? Who's in charge of something else? And there's disagreement around that very question of who's in charge here. And then you get polarization and you get fighting that happens in a church. The very attitude of who's in charge here is a forsaking of something very critical, not only with James, but taught by Jesus, spoken of in the Old Testament, and picked up by other New Testament writers as well. It is the forsaking of the spirit and the attitude of humility, which we'll pick up in a few moments, which is extremely important to James. So our first statement is, don't fight. A statement for the church and for all of life. We are called, we are exhorted, we are encouraged to look for ways to shape and make peace, even as indicated in last week's message. And I would remind you again, there were no chapter divisions when the Bible was originally written. So in this very line here, it's talking about fighting. The line before, it talks about peacemaking. And uh, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And one way to contribute to that peace, we also brought it out last week with Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. But why do people fight? Many reasons, but James brings out one reason in terms of why they were fighting in the church. And so that leads us to our second, don't covet. Why do people fight? Because, largely because of coveting. And so what does our text say? Uh, Verses 1 and 2, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have. So you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. So the question is, why? Why fighting? And this is not intended to be a complete response here, but part of the answer is that fighting comes from a covetous spirit. With the focus on coveting, James is carrying forward the emphasis on envy and selfish ambition that we saw in last week's text. And coveting can take the... take expressions in in a number of different ways and and you just flick on the tv and watch news and you can see a lot of a lot of coveting and 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 fighting going on there like we see in the ukrainian russian dispute over land and also you see it in coveting over money especially with various um various financial pyramid schemes 
And we see coveting in, in pecking order in the workplace to, to be on top or, or to get that big corner office. Or in, in my case, um, I look across the street to another apartment that has, has a balcony there, and, and I think, oh, that would be nice to have a, a balcony with, a, with maybe a barbecue. Or maybe uh, the, I sometimes look at the houses that I work on and think, oh, it would be nice to have a yard with a fence, and if I can go this far, even maybe a dog. There you go. Not asking for a lot. Just apartment with a balcony, and so you have a barbecue set there. But the interesting thing of this text is because of coveting, Christians in the time of James, they quarreled and they fought. Not only that, but the language here in verse 2 is, at least if you look at it literally, is that seemingly they were involved in killing. <laughs> Which is sort of, you look at this and, well, how do you interpret that? Well, maybe it is meant to be taken literally. And the language that James used here might well have been to bring shock value and, 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 and to use it figuratively in, in, the, in this pa- in passage of Scripture. Or maybe it was literally uh, meant to be taken literally. And maybe something did happen in one of those churches or the churches that he was involved in, such as the killing of Abel by Cain, going back to the Old Testament. The interesting thing about that Old Testament story is that Cain coveted the favor that Abel had with God, consistent with our text here. It was equally his to secure, as indicated by God, but he failed to do as such. So the Bible says that, so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. So it began with a covetous spirit, then there was anger, and then there was murder, a killing that happened. Unchecked anger can take people to a fighting mood, then to conflict, and even the killing, be it manslaughter, second degree, or even first degree, it can begin with a covetous spirit within a soul and a spirit. So we extend that word to you as an extension of these two verses right here. Don't covet. So James now moves on to a related matter connected to that coveting spirit. So number three of our don't statements, don't pray with selfish motives. James 4 verses 2 to 3 says, You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So I have a question, and it's a serious, serious question. Does God listen to one's prayer if they ask to win the Lotto 649? Uh, it's, a, it's a serious question. I'll read it again. Does God listen to one's prayer for winning Lotto 649? Okay, well, what if, what if it comes with a promise to at least tithe part of it? Would God listen to it then? Or maybe even a double tithe, 50% or 20%? With that question, ultimately, we cannot speak for God. But, but my guess is that the answer is, and it's not three letters, it's only two letters, It's no. And I suspect uh, I'm saying it kind of nicely and gently. I suspect it might be fair to say that God doesn't give a rip about answering that prayer, if I could say it that way. God is not some sort of cosmic, somewhat personalized vending machine ready to drop down into our hands our every women wish, and certainly not the winnings of Lotto 649. Can you imagine... 
all the people that would flock to Christianity. And for all the wrong reasons, if we could somehow prove that God answers prayers related to Lot of 649. I am reading through Jeremiah right now, and in Jeremiah there are a number of places where God is very explicit in saying he will not hear the prayers of his people. And those explicit points are there where they are misdirected prayers and where there are wrong motives and wrong values. And God says quite explicitly, he will not hear those prayers. And so that's an issue here that was happening with James and the church and churches that he was a part of where there was this covetous spirit and they were even praying with wrong motives and and then they were even fighting because of all of that. So our statement, our third don't statement here is don't pray with selfish motives. Don't pray in that vein. And that leads us to our fourth. Uh, don't be friends with the world. So James 4 verse 4, you adulterous people, you do not know that friendship with the world means enmity against God. Therefore, Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? James is very blunt and very forward, right? He, he is not, he doesn't know what it means to be politically correct. It's kind of like, you know, he starts this off. Did you see those first three words, you adulterous people? It's, you know, and I, we're not bringing that word to you and saying it to you, but James, if he were preaching here to the very group of people that he was speaking to, it's like he would be, he'd get up in front of them and say, you're a bunch of adulterous people. I mean, there's nothing gentle or politically correct in terms of sometimes that that sort of spirit. And, And yet that's the language he uses here. You adulterous people, he calls a spade a spade. And that adultery here speaks of spiritual adultery. More specifically, friendship with the world. Loving the world more than God. So what does friendship with the world mean? So let's look at the word world for a little bit. And the, and the, world, the word world, tongue twister, is used in three different ways in the Bible. And number one is, is the physical world that God created. Number two is of people. Uh, for God so loved the world, John 3.16. And the third one is the evil that exists in the world. And so I think James uses the the third one of these, the evil that exists in the world. And perhaps one of the clearest verses of this is found in 1 John 2, verse 15, which says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from God. It could be said that these three temptations is what prompted the original sin. The lust of the flesh, uh, the, the fruit was desirable to make one wise. Uh, John th- or Genesis 3, 6, uh, lust of the eyes. The woman saw that this, the tree was good for food. And Genesis, also in Genesis 3, 6, the pride of life. The devil said, you will be like God. So this matter about friendship with the world and on the other side, friendship with God is a big matter in the book of James. 
the book of James could maybe be summarized by simply, whose friend are you? Are you God's friend? Or are you the world's friend? To whom do we belong? And the matter behind all of this is that God loves us. He fiercely loves us. And he is also at the same time a jealous God. God longs for the spirit as indicated in this text. He is caused to dwell within us. He longs to be in relationship with that spirit. So the word here, the don't word is, don't be friends with the world, but be friends with God. Now, with our fifth one, if we get caught in a web or any part of it in fighting or coveting or praying with selfish motives or friendship world and there's conviction, how do we get out of that? And the word is humility. So don't look, don't overlook humility. Verse 6 says, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourself then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. It's, It's obvious to say that humility is really important to God. Humility was mentioned in last week's text and now is carried forward into this chapter where it is expanded on. So how do we humble ourselves? So this passage of scripture here, these few verses here, really comes at the heart of uh, what does it mean? How do we humble ourselves? Well, we humble ourselves as indicated in verse 7 by submitting ourselves, ordering our lives under God's authority. Could be all kinds of biblical stories that we might pick up. We might pick up the story of Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector who, who reordered his life under God. Or the tax collector who is there confessing his sin before God and, and uh, there's a Pharisee beside him, but he's reordering his life before God. And so doing, he is submitting himself to God. Uh, we humble ourselves by, by resisting the devil. That's part of it as well. Uh, not necessarily a cry for dramatic spiritual warfare. It may be as simple as praying the Lord's Prayer with focused attention on deliver us from all evil. Deliver us from the evil one. So again, how do we humble ourselves? Um, By coming near to God. I keep, for myself, (coughs) for myself, I, um, I come near to God as I... I'm reminded of the fact that I am merely dust. Ecclesiastes 3.20 says, All to the same place, all came from dust, and all returned to dust. That awareness prompts me to keep coming near to God. And, and also by, by washing your hands. And this is the reference to the external with the internal understood. I don't know if you ever go to a, a hospital, you see hand sanitizer everywhere. And this, this might be a good reminder uh, so in life, figuratively, we are called to practice ongoing and spiritual sanitizing of our hands, doing so frequently. And also by, uh, by purifying our hearts. And this is for the reference to the internal. How? By focusing on that which is good. Whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, set your mind, your hearts on these things. So we humble ourselves by submitting ourselves to God, by resisting the evil one, by coming near to God, by washing our hands, by purifying our hearts, 
And then the last line in here is by, by grieving, by mourning, and by wailing. Now, we don't wail. <laughs> but I've been in some settings where I've heard people wail about their own sinfulness, their brokenness, brokenness on behalf of our nation. And literally, there's this grieving, this mourning, this wailing. James uses that line here, and then he uses that word again in chapter 5, verse 1, in the very next line, uh, in the next chapter as well. Over what? Over one's covetous spirit, one's friendship with the world, one's wrong motives, one's fighting spirits. Now, James is not a killjoy, but at this moment, where there's a need, at least in their situation, in their church situation, where there's a realization of the wickedness and the wretchedness of sin, he calls for this spirit of brokenness that would be accompanied by grieving, mourning, and even wailing. It would be similar to the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 where it, you know, Jesus is speaking and he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And the context of that, of course, is that blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Those who feel their abject poverty before God, their own sinfulness. Uh, and because of that, and their longing for righteousness, they mourn and they grieve. And even in some situations, they may wail as well. So you take all of those together, submitting ourselves, resisting the devil, coming near to God, washing our hands, purifying ourselves, our hearts, grieving, mourning, and wailing, and then we humble ourselves, verse 10, before the Lord, and there comes the promise. He will lift you up in the midst of your brokenness. So our fifth statement is, don't overlook humility. And we're, we're saying that because... Maybe humility isn't really in. How often do we hear about humility? How often are we invited to think in terms of humbling ourselves before the Lord and before others? What does that look like? So the invitation on our fifth don't statement here is don't overlook humility. And our sixth statement is found in uh, verse 11. It says, don't slander and or judge. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So the root for this word slander is to speak against. Um, what we say is really important. Uh, in these verses, the alignment, there's a lot of alignment with the James 3 passage about the tongue. And that, that passage says, <coughs> But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Verse 10, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. And of course, when we speak against someone and we slander against someone, we put ourselves in a position of judge. 
And Jesus, of course, to be reminded, said, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? And slander, slander is a negative expression of judging others. So the don't statement of these last two verses simply is, don't slander, don't judge other people. So there it is, our summary of this text by way of six don't statements. It's interesting in society, we also have other don't statements that are employed and oftentimes embedded within it, a fair amount of wisdom. One that we hear quite a bit is don't drink and drive. Um, Good wisdom for all of society. Don't drink and drive. And when people have not, in society, have not heeded that advice and that wisdom, there have been some negative consequences uh, related uh, to that. Equally here, there is wisdom in these application statements based on James chapter 4. So, don't fight. If you're fighting in marriage right now, find a way to become peacemakers sooner than later. Don't covet. If you are watching TV and suddenly you are dissatisfied with your car because of something you saw on TV, uh, could that, and you wish you had so-and-so's car, don't covet. Don't pray with selfish motives. Um, Can we make our prayer life and our prayer world more than just our world and to embrace the much broader world beyond us? Don't be friends of the world. Find different ways to evaluate whether perhaps we are friends with the world. Don't overlook humility and the importance of humility. And then finally, don't slander and or judge. Don't speak negatively of other people. And so, in a sense, maybe elevate yourself by cutting other people down. So for our time of response, we would invite the worship team up. uh, But uh, as they're coming, we would invite you to look at the list that's on the screen. If we could still keep it on the screen just for a few moments, the list. And we would ask you to look at the list that's on the screen and discern if there's one that requires attention on your part. And if so, would you think in terms of how you might respond with just that one that might be on the list? And we'll give you a few moments of silence, maybe about 30, 40 seconds, where you can just respond before God appropriately and saying, this is maybe where I need to respond on the spirit of coveting, or this is maybe where I need to respond on this matter of humility. And then right after that, the worship team will lead us in a song of response as well. And then Tim will come and conclude the service with a word of benediction.